We continue this morning our series in Mark, which we began last week. And actually continue the sermon that we were preaching last week because I could not finish. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We will read together the first 13 verses. Before reading, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, help us now to pour contempt on all our pride and to submit ourselves as believers under the authority of the Word of God. All things subservient to the authority of Thy Word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to think through the text. Help that our will and our affections will be transformed by the text. And as we continue week after week with some interruption to work our way through Mark's gospel, may we see Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us and rose from the dead for us, we ask, Father, that those who are in our midst today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ would hear the word that a seed would be planted that perhaps another waters, but that God would give the increase. Or perhaps this is the day in which they will be drawn out of darkness into light, that they will see for the first time, that they will have spiritual life for the first time. We pray for the salvation of those who do not know Christ, of the lost and the undone. For so many of us here, Heavenly Father, can say we were dead in trespasses and sins, lost and undone, hell-deserving. But Christ died for us, and the Holy Spirit regenerated us and opened our sight so that we could see, our ears so that we could hear, and now our mouths so that we may speak His praises. Father, do hear our prayer, for we ask that Christ would be glorified, for that is our chief end, to enjoy God, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to do so forever. In the name of Christ, our mediator, we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. <clears throat> Mark's Gospel, <clears throat> chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, O. Palmer Robertson says, the wilderness represents the place of repentance where God's covenant people as well as of the peoples of the world begin their return to God. Now, we had to stop last week as we were stressing the ministry of John the Baptist and his cry of repentance in the wilderness. I simply had too much to say. There was too much to to pick up on. And so we're going to do that now, pick up on this theme and the others that we find in this opening section of Mark's gospel. The first thing is this. Repentance is called for by man's depravity. Repentance is called for by man's depravity. In other words, as we look specifically at the repentance he was calling for, we need to understand that undergirding it is the depravity of man and our deep and desperate need. Of course, repentance is called for by our depravity. Repentance is repentance from sin. Repentance is the sovereign demand of God for sinners to turn from their sin and self to him for salvation. It is demanded against the backdrop of original sin, the corruption of our nature due to Adam's fall. Now, in the Pelagian view, man's regeneration is a natural exercise. A man has natural ability, it is thought, to turn or to not turn, to repent or not repent. But the scriptures teach differently The destiny of Adam's posterity is inseparably related to Adam's disobedience and fall. He was the representative of humanity, and his moral and legal disobedience brought the curse not only upon himself, but also upon us. Therefore, our Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes, Adam's posterity sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Yes, it is true, in Adam's fall we sin it all. And therefore we speak of the total depravity of man. Again, our Westminster Shorter Catechism, the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Our actual sins, transgressions, therefore, stem from a corrupt heart, stem from the depravity of our souls. 
And the backdrop of the call to repentance is this original sin, which means the corruption of man's whole nature. It is a habit that has laid complete hold upon man's active powers, including the will. Man is not, as one old divine put it, man is not depraved in patches, just a little here or a little there. Original sin is not corruption of just some faculty of the soul or some part of man, but of the soul itself. And therefore, in this congregation, you will often hear that we use the expression total depravity. Now, what do we mean when we say that? I'm going to give you three things that it means when we say total depravity. Now, there are many other things, but these are three things, three truths. The first thing we mean when we speak of total depravity is, and this is the backdrop of the need of repentance, is that we do not by nature love God. No one is born into this world since the fall of Adam loving God. Our first responsibility is to love God, and this every soul knows is his calling and yet is totally traitorous. No unconverted sinner has a spiritual and holy love for God. Now, we may very well love our idea of God, but we do not love the God who is. And so in our fallen condition, we do not love God pervasively in the soul. That first we mean when we speak of total depravity. The second thing we mean when we say total depravity is that even our morality condemns us. Though we are grateful for the thoughts and actions, man to man, person to person, that we may call virtuous, yet as R.L. Dabney put it, there is in those same acts and feeling a fatal defect as to God, which places them on the wrong side of the moral dividing line. That is, they are prompted by self-centered concerns and desires in the sense that There is no prompting to regard God's glory as preeminent, God's will as the reason for performing these acts. God is not in all their thoughts, Psalm 10.4 says, and a man's best acts outside of Christ are not done to please God. These acts may not be as heinous as other sins, but they still in God's sight miss the mark. So, for example, you may have a man who is an unbeliever. He does not know Christ, and yet he loves his family, and he's honest in his business dealings, and perhaps he cares for his community or for the social order. But in eternity, none of these relations will exist as they do now. And if you do not delight in him and live for him now, you will have no place for him in your life and heart in eternity. The third thing that we mean when we speak of the total depravity of the sinner is that our depravity is spiritual death. Paul says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Depravity is total in that it is spiritual death. And just as dead bodies putrefy, a soul dead in trespasses and sins left to itself may well progress to utter depravity as we often see in our culture and society even today. And that's why in the first chapter of the book of Romans, as the Apostle Paul dwells on the sins of that culture, and especially sexual sins of that culture, three times he says, and God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, gave them over to their sin, 
in his judgment, gives entire societies, entire cultures over because of their sin and their depravity. I remember A.T. Robertson speaking of this as like clods on the coffin as God gave them over to work their wicked will. But do not think of total depravity as only encompassing the most base of the world. That certainly would not be the case. Having mentioned Dabney, I've read in two places in his works over the years about a young woman. Here's this young woman, young lady that's brought up with good morals. She would never think of theft. She would never swear. She would never dream of drunkenness. She would not have anything to do with impurity. She is sincere in this. But there reside within her forms of self-will and especially sins of omission against God that are just as ingrained as drunkenness is ingrained in a drunk man's heart. She conforms to the world with her peers. She may love to read things that she should not read. The Sabbath is not a delight to her. She is prayerless in that sense of real prayer. She's not willing to forsake the world for Christ and for him to be first in her life, Lord of her life. And her mother says to her in tenderness, in these things you are wrong toward your heavenly father, and she remains silent. Her mother calls her to Christ and she will not. Mother, she says, don't press me. I would rather not promise. She will not come to Christ. She has a well-bred but hard heart toward the living and the true God. And so you see, total depravity doesn't always mean acting like a, more like a beast than a man, or rioting in the streets, or stealing, or, or, or doing some horrible thing to your neighbor. It can be seen in that lovely, well-bred, and moral young lady Perhaps someone here today is saying, that's me. I've never seen that before. I've not seen my need of Christ. I've not seen that he is calling me to repentance, though I'm so moral, yet I'm lost and depraved. So repentance is called for by man's depravity. And if we are to be saved, God must intervene. He must regenerate and give the grace of faith and repentance But God calls upon all men everywhere to repent. You say, well, if that's the case, would God call upon men to do what they cannot do? Absolutely. Every man who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though incapable. Can they not naturally do so? No, indeed, they cannot. A lost sinner cannot, due to his sinful, fallen will, repent of his own volition. Sinners love their sin. We love those things that continue to kill us and destroy us. And the man with a withered hand could not stretch that hand forth until Christ commanded and enabled, as we will see in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel. How is it with you? How is it with your heart? How is it with your soul? I remember when I was a boy how 
in my heart. Oh, I was moral. I was brought up to be moral. I had all the morality nailed down, but I hated the God who was. When I finally understood something of who he was, I hated the God who was, and I hated others deep within my heart. It was God that intervened and granted me the grace of faith and repentance. But also, the remainder of this section, in the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness is what holds it together. All of these verses that we have read this morning. John baptizes in the wilderness, calls for repentance in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized in the wilderness. He is tempted in the wilderness, that is to say, more deeply in the wilderness, in the desert. It's in the wilderness that holds all of this together in this passage. In the wilderness, we are encouraged by how our Savior came down and became man in order to save us from our sin and overcomes human depravity, overcomes our inability. Because the second thing that we see in this text after looking at repentance is, secondly, the promise of the Spirit. And we see this in verses 7 and 8 in which we read, and he preached, that is, John was preaching, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John administers eschatological baptism. Jesus, he says, will bring the eschatological gift of the Holy Spirit. And John heralds one who is infinitely superior to him, and he is humbled into the dust. Jesus must increase. He must decrease. His clear view of Christ humbles him so deeply. I'm not even worthy, he says, to untie the shoelaces of the impeccable Christ. And he was right. Nor are we. J.A. Alexander said, to an oriental audience, words could hardly have been expressed, could hardly have expressed the idea of disparity in a stronger or more revolting manner. Well, revolting it may have been to the ears of those who heard him say, I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces, but here's, here's what he knew, that the one coming to him to be baptized was the sinless Son of God. In verse 8, when he says, I baptize you in water, that is, I baptize you by divine authority, he's saying this, I baptize you by divine authority, but the one coming after me will bathe your souls in the Holy Spirit. Now, allow this promise to arrest your heart. It is not that the Holy Spirit was not at work prior to the coming of Christ, of course, and what is promised here, but in the staging principle of redemption, Christ will pour out His Spirit with greater clarity, with greater intensity, with intentionality, with greater efficacy than in times past, and more remarkably and notably than before. Now think of it. This is the Christ who, after He was dead, buried, raised, ascended on high, in Acts chapter 2, poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church making us missionary church. This is the Holy Spirit who regenerates lost sinners. And we read in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. This is the Holy Spirit 
the Spirit of Christ that now indwells the believer in such a way that the Spirit of God cries out with our spirit saying, Abba, Father, so that the great King of Kings is now recognized to be our Father and the Holy Spirit works deep within that assurance of faith in the child of God. And so we have a new helper granting us ongoing deeper repentance and assured dependence upon him and that he is with us and will not leave nor forsake us in a way deeper than was known by others before the coming of Christ. Now, do you notice what that says about Jesus? Who comes after the forerunner according to Malachi 3.1? The Lord himself comes according to Malachi 3.1. Who is the one who comes after in Isaiah 40 there is There is the promise of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, it's Jehovah himself who, think of Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour out my water upon the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Who pours out the spirit in the last day? It's God himself. What does Jesus do? He will pour out the Spirit on the last day. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then who is Jesus? He is God. Jesus is God become man to redeem, to save, and make us to be spiritual men and women right from the start. Mark confronts his readers with the deity of Christ in a variety of ways, some of which we've already seen He is the Son of God, the one who pours out the Spirit, and we have the triune being of God in this text, and the Father's declaration about His Son in this passage, which is the third thing we see. God's declaration concerning His Son. Now look at verses 9 through 11 again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now Mark does not tell us why Jesus came to be baptized. Matthew does. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He was vicarious. His life was vicarious. His death was vicarious. It was in our place that he stood for us condemned sinners. His baptism was vicarious, but Mark is focused on the Father's language of approval of his Son in this passage. And Mark is very vivid. Often he's vivid in his, in his Greek. He uses a word that means to rip. The heaven is torn open, verse 10, or it is ripped open. It's the verb that is used of the curtain that is torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died upon the cross in Mark 15.38. And that's intentional. This is a stupendous revelation of Christ's person and significance at the beginning and at the ending of his earthly ministry. And what it says to you is simply this, heaven is now opened for sinners that there is good news from heaven. The Son of God has come. And God has spoken His word of approval. The Father approves this work. Heaven opens for this God-man to save and redeem. Heaven opens for you. 
You were barred from it, from from entering into his presence by sin, but now it opens for you, and through him you may return to the Father. That's what it says. The descent of the dove in verse 10 is probably a reference to the brooding of the Spirit at creation, Genesis 1-2. Because in Jesus, the new creation has begun. And the Father's verbal approbation in verse 11 echoes many Old Testament passages. Particularly, it echoes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, that speaks of the conquering Messiah, king over the nations. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. Or Isaiah 42, 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Who then is Jesus? God's own son who shares fully in the divine being, the king of the nations, under the direction of God's Spirit, upon whom the Father's eternal good pleasure rests. And here, here we have the revelation of the triune being of God, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who became man to fulfill his messianic mission to redeem you from your sins, people of God. John the baptizer is a wonderful prophet. He continues in the line of the prophets, and God speaks through him after 400 years of silence. But Jesus? Jesus is no mere prophet. He's completely unique, and since he is all that the Father says he is, dare you take him for granted? The one upon whom the Father's good pleasure rested to accomplish redemption for us? It should not surprise us to see that immediately in Mark, there is a stress on the deity of Christ and on the Trinity. The Father who speaks from heaven, the dove descending upon the Son, the Son ready to go and accomplish the Father's redemptive will. You know, I have a quotation in the opening pages of my Greek New Testament from Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. It reads this way, precisely what the New Testament is, is the documentation of the incarnate Son and of the outpoured Spirit, that is to say, the religion of the Trinity. And maybe that will revolutionize the way in which you read the New Testament. What is the New Testament but the revelation of the triune God and his purpose and plan for sinners? Shouldn't he therefore be? If he is who he is, and he is, the Son of God upon whom whom the favor of the Father rests, empowered by the Spirit in His earthly ministry to achieve salvation that we could never have achieved, to accomplish what we could never have accomplished. Indeed, then He must be the center of the universe. Should He not then be the center of your universe? Should He not then be the center of your life? Should he not be the Lord of your heart and the Lord of your decision-making and the Lord of your family and the Lord of your thoughts and words and deeds? Oh, yes, he should. He should. But God the Son, the beloved of the Father, became man and entered into conflict with sin and the powers of darkness for us sinners, which is the fourth thing that we see in this passage the context of conflict. 
the redeeming work of Christ happened in this fallen, sinful world as he came to overcome your depravity, my sinful depravity, so that he might grant us faith and repentance to believe the gospel that he came to bring. The gospel comes in a context of conflict and as we shall see all through Mark's gospel as we move to the cross and resurrection, his temptation in the wilderness. Now what we read here in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. He was driven by the Spirit. The word actually can mean cast out. He was cast more deeply into the wilderness, into the desert, by the Spirit of God that was working within him with almighty power, driving him because he's God, but man, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, driven into the wilderness. And this happened, it says, immediately. Now, just notice that. Because this word immediately is found 41 times in Mark's gospel. You read through it, and he will say, immediately, 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 immediately. It's a fast-paced, fast-moving gospel. It's used only, this word immediately is used only five times in Matthew, only one time in Luke, three times in John, but it's something you should note. His descriptive details are remarkable, but it's a brief account, fast-paced. So he's driven immediately into the wilderness. Now, Mark does not mention the rebuke, Jesus' rebuke of the devil in his temptations with the Word of God, the details, the marvelous things that we read about the temptation of Christ in Matthew or in Luke. He doesn't do that. In this brief account, he doesn't do that because Mark is driving home a theological point. And he's doing it from the context in which he was tempted in this historical narrative. In the desert. In the desert is repeated three times in verses 12 and 13. He stresses where the temptation of Christ happened. And where did it happen? People of God, it happened in the wilderness, in the desert, in that place in which he was most alone and in greatest conflict for your soul. The wilderness, the place where Moses and Elijah were prepared for their prophetic ministries, 40 days in the wilderness, now Jesus, the Son of God, so condescended so humbled himself that he went into the wilderness for you. And here Jesus' greater prophetic ministry begins in the wilderness among the beasts and beyond human help. And the stress is on this supernatural conflict and support. He came to overcome Satan's kingdom. He came to overcome Satan's thraldom over your soul. And it happened in the wilderness where God manifests the victory of the impeccable Son. 
the last Adam succeeding where the first Adam failed. And that when and where everything was against him. No food, no drink, wild beasts. Who could help him but God? And there he is in the wilderness for us. He took the offensive against Satan's kingdom for us. That kingdom that we are so prone to be attracted to. That kingdom that already has some people undoubtedly under the sound of the voice of the preaching this morning in thraldom, loving the things of the kingdom of the evil one, desiring those things. We Christians tempted to go back to those old dark things. Jesus took the offensive against the devil. You know, I placed Hosea chapter 2 as our Old Testament reading this morning, though I know it was a bit unusual. And you might have noticed when Pastor McDonald was reading to us verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her, that would be Israel, the people of God, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And the Jews thought that verse indicated, and I think they're right, that the Messiah would come in the wilderness. The wilderness in redemptive history is both the place of testing and of revelation. And here Israel is tested in the person of Christ and what is revealed about him. That he is the impeccable. Young people, children, that means he's sinless. That he is the sinless Son of God. And therefore, this sinless Son of God become man is able to redeem you and me from our sins and substitute himself in obedience in his life and on the cross pay that infinite debt which we deserve to pay forever and ever and ever and rise from the dead on the third day. This is where we see the beginning of that wonderful narrative unfold. Now remember something. Remember, this is from last week, the words of William Hendrickson, who gave us the bottom line about the wilderness. And he said, the wilderness through which a path must be made ready for the Lord is in the final analysis, the people's heart inclined to all evil. Hear it again. The wilderness through which a path must be made ready for the Lord is in the final analysis, the people's heart inclined to all evil. Oh, if he can make a path with his gospel word and truth through my heart inclined to all evil, then this truly is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit has brought together the themes of wilderness and repentance and the deity of Christ and the promise of the Spirit and the triune being of God and Christ's temptation for sinners. Why? Why this section in the wilderness? Why? Why these themes? Because it says two things to us. 
First of all, all of these truths and all of these realities being read by generations and generations and generations. All of these truths and realities right here in these first 13 verses call us to repentance. Do they not? We are confronted right away in Mark with every indication that we need deliverance from our deep commitment to Satan's kingdom and self-security, which is smoke. And he not only calls us to repentance, but this is the second thing it shows us. This person, this triune God, this Redeemer, this Son of God is actually able to change your heart through the work of His Holy Spirit so that you do believe and repent. He is able to give the grace of faith and repentance. He is able to take that stony heart and make a heart of flesh and write His law upon it. He is able to give you the new birth. Repentance is not a work of righteousness that we do. Don't hear penance when I use the word repentance. It is not a work of righteousness which we perform. It is a turning from all of that, from sin, from self, from my supposed merit as if I could have any, from my works of righteousness as if I could have them. Repentance is a turning from all of that to the only one who can redeem and the only one who can save from sin and self to the only one who can help you. And there you are, you're bound in sin and you love it so and hate it so at the same time and sometimes you're struggling, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? What can I do? What you need to come and realize is that it is what He can do that is the issue. He can enable repentance. This one, God's own Son, tempted in the wilderness, can enable totally depraved sinners to be saved and to believe and to repent. Just hold Him up and look at Him as you read through Mark's Gospel and see what great things He has done in healing the sick and raising the dead and shedding His blood and rising from the dead. And so you are here today in the providence of God hearing this sermon And maybe someone here says within his heart, I don't want to repent. Or, I I don't care. Well, no lost sinner does until the Holy Spirit works in his heart. Or perhaps the Spirit is working in your heart and yet you're saying, oh, my sin is so deep, I will never be able to repent and trust this Christ whom you're preaching. Well, I want to leave you with a most interesting and encouraging event from the life of that greatly used Presbyterian minister, Benjamin Morgan Palmer. In his first ministry, B.M. Palmer was faithfully preaching in his services. Sinners cannot save themselves, yet he was calling on sinners to believe and repent. You can't save yourself believe and repent. You cannot save yourself, believe and repent. And there was a young hearer that was deeply bothered, perturbed by that preaching. And he came to see B.M. Palmer, who was in his study. 
And he said, you preachers are so contradictory. You preach that the sinner cannot repent, and yet you command us to do so. Well, elaborate, said Palmer. Well, he said, well, just yesterday you said in your sermon that sinners were perfectly helpless in themselves, utterly unable to repent and believe, and then you turned around and said that they would all be damned if they did not. Palmer said, well, there's no use quarreling over, over it. If you can repent, go do it. Now, Palmer had not taken his eyes off of his writing desk the whole time this conversation was going on. And after a few moments, there was a choking reply, and the young man said, I have been trying my best for three whole days, and I cannot repent. And so the wise pastor put down his pen, and he replied, Ah, that puts a different face upon it. We will go then and tell the difficulty straight out to God. And he knelt with the young man together, and they pleaded for divine intervention. And God, in his grace, saved his soul. So that's it. You are left powerless in the hands of God. And when you realize this, That's the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing you to faith, bringing you to repentance, bringing you to Christ, and drawing your heart from your wilderness wandering of sin. Come to Christ, believe, repent, and may the Holy Spirit enable you to do so. Amen and amen.